0: Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today, we'll hear from General H.R. McMaster, who served as a commissioned officer in the United States Army for 34 years before retiring as a lieutenant general in June 2018, after which he served as President Trump's national security advisor. He is now a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Today he will discuss his recent book, Battlegrounds, which examines the most critical security and foreign policy challenges facing the United States. Let's listen in.
1: I'm Ron Jake, uh one of the folks that's been around this for a long time. Um, I, I've done, I don't know, probably 10 of these and introduced them. And each time I want to really figure out what I want to say and how do I want to properly introduce? Um, this is a special case. This is truly, you heard the expression, somebody who needs no introduction. Every one of us knows who our, our guest today, uh, General McMaster is. Um, I, I, I need only tell you that, that he was a, a, a you know, Lieutenant General in, the, in, 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 in our armed services, PhD in military history, went on to, to to become one of the most thoughtful observers in, in foreign policy and served as the uh, head of the National Security Council for what, about 17 months, roughly?
2: 13 months, Ron. 13,
1: Thirteen months. months, I overstated it. Uh, but you stayed longer than most anyone. Um, in, in, in any case, it is truly our pleasure uh, to have the general here and we're gonna take about uh, Five or ten minutes. Let him share some of his thoughts on on foreign policy and where he'd like to go, and then we'll open it up to your questions. And I have a hard stop at four fifty-five to get uh, the general on to his next appointment. So, uh, General McMaster.
2: Hey, hey thanks, Ron. It's, it's a real pleasure to be with you. And you know, I I'd love to hear where you want to take the discussion. So I'll, I'll just try to be brief, but. So I I wrote this book, Battlegrounds, as an effort really to help try to bring Americans together, which is very much in keeping with your mission and the great work that all of you are doing. I do see that this increasing polarization in our society, the vitriolic partisan discourse, uh, as weakening our our confidence, our confidence in who we are as a people, and certainly our confidence in our ability to implement an effective foreign policy and approach to national security uh, to, to pursue objectives that are consistent with our desire to build a better future for generations to come. Uh, what, what I what I hope to do is, is is shine the light on our really key aspects of our loss of strategic competence, especially in the post-Cold War period, the period during which I think we were confident, we had reason to be confident, but that confidence became overconfidence and that overconfidence led to complacency. And in particular, after the victory over the Soviet Union in the Cold War, after the lopsided victory Uh, over over Saddam Hussein's military in in Desert Storm, I believe that many Americans accepted three general and fundamentally flawed assumptions uh, about the nature of of the post-Cold War world, uh, what George H. W. Bush had hoped would be a a new world order. And that is, first uh, among them, that an arc of history had guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems. Second, related to that is that great power competition was a was passe, a relic of the past. And third is that America's technological military prowess had guaranteed not only our primacy but but our security uh, well into the future. And that if any enemy had the temerity to challenge us, uh, they would be defeated quickly and cheaply and efficiently. and, 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 And future war would be characterized by American military dominance, so to speak. This is the orthodoxy of the revolution in military affairs. And I think of this period in the 90s as a setup, you know, a setup for... Uh, for disappointments and frustrations in the 2000s, beginning with the mass murder attacks of 9-11, the unanticipated length and difficulty of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the financial crisis. And our, our confidence was shaken, I think, uh, by, the, by 2008, 2009 when the Obama administration came in. Uh, and, and I think it was during this period of time that we became, became pessimistic, pessimistic about our ability to, to influence the, the future course of events abroad, and and a belief that retrenchment was the right prescription for U.S. foreign policy and national security, and that our disengagement from complex problem sets overseas, particularly in South Asia and the Middle East, what was an unmitigated good. What I I write about in the book is that both these approaches suffered from strategic narcissism, and in particular, the tendency uh, not to give due attention to the agency, the influence, the authorship over the future that the other has. And I think it's a fair criticism of the Bush administration, maybe to say that the administration did not consider fully the risks and costs of action, whereas the Obama administration did not consider fully the risks and costs of uh, of inaction uh, or or disengagement. Of course, 2003 invasion of Iraq is the is the is the is the topic of, of discussion oftentimes in connection with whether or not we should have invaded Iraq. And I think actually an even more useful uh, discussion uh, could be. You know, who the heck thought it would be easy, and, and they think it, it would be easy? And then I think examples of of of, uh, of inaction, and disengagement, include the complete disengagement from Iraq in December 2011, the unenforced red line in Syria in, in in 2014, and maybe even in an effort in 2011 in Libya to avoid the mistakes of the Bush administration, but then the Obama administration inadvertently, I think, actually exceeding uh, th- those those mistakes and not making. Uh, a significant effort uh, to shape the political settlement in a post-Qaddafi Libya, for for example. I think that the the, the prognosis isn't much better uh, today in connection with our strategic competence, and and I think you see that with you know with the mantra of ending end, endless wars and the desire, for example, in Afghanistan to disengage as an end in and of itself, and and again, sort of paradoxically here, the Trump administration in touting its opposition to Obama. Uh, uh, your foreign policies uh, have actually replicated the mistakes associated with the Obama approach to Afghanistan and Pakistan, for example, and actually exceeded them uh, by partnering with the Taliban against the the Afghan government. So, what I argue for the book is, in the book, is is a strong dose of strategic empathy, and in particular, considering uh, the, the 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 ideology and, and emotions and aspirations that drive and constrain the other, the need to understand better. You know, how the recent past produced the present as the first step of making suppositions about the future. And, and, uh, and examine what I think are the, the most crucial challenges to, to our security, challenges posed by the Chinese Communist Party that is, that is adamant about extending it and tightening its exclusive grip on power internally. We see this with campaign of cultural genocide uh, in Xinjiang, the extension of the party's repression uh, to Hong Kong, but we also see this aspiration on the part of the party uh, to, to to take center stage in the world and and a more aggressive approach to exporting its authoritarian uh, mercantilist model. And if and if the Chinese Communist Party succeeds, the world will be less free, less prosperous, and less safe. Uh, we see uh, the need for strategic empathy in connection with Russia and Vladimir Putin's determination to drag all of us down. Putin knows he can't compete with us on our own terms. His economy is the size of about Texas's economy, and so his theory of victory is to be the last man standing, so to speak, uh, in Europe, and the West, and vis-a-vis the United States. And, and Russia, the campaign, the sustained campaign of, of disruption, disinformation, and denial uh, aims to, to polarize us, to pit us against each other, to widen divisions in our society, to reduce our confidence in our, our democratic principles and institutions uh, and, and, and processes such that we can no longer com- compete effectively. We, we face continuing challenges as well from transnational threats. I do believe we can talk more about this that jihadist terrorist organizations are more dangerous today than they were even on September 10th, 2001, uh, for a number of reasons uh, that we can discuss for those who are more interested. But essentially, I, I try to make the case in the book for sustained and, 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 uh, and sensible uh, engagement uh, to, to prevent these groups from gaining the strength necessary to once again committing mass murder against us, or attacking our interests abroad, or, or our allies in the Middle East. I think that this is a competition that is still relevant. A series of competitions ongoing there, still relevant to our security. Despite America's energy independence and net exporter of, of energy, uh, this is the geographic heart of, of many of these jihadist terrorist organizations uh, who remain committed, who re- remain committed to attacking the, the near enemy uh, of the Arab monarchies and and Israel on the far enemy, including Europe and, and the United States. And of course, uh, this is where Iran has has been active in continuing its 40-year-long proxy war uh, against the great Satan, us, the little Satan, Israel, and the Arab monarchies as well. There, there are some positive developments in the region we could talk about, especially those associated with the, the Abraham Accords. But with both Iran and, and with, uh, uh, with North Korea, I think it's important to to consider, you know, the ideology and, and emotions that, that drive and constrain the the adversary. I believe in Iran, for example, flawed assumptions underpinned our approach across multiple administrations, based on the belief that Iran, having been welcomed back uh, uh, into the international community, being offered, uh, you know, a conciliatory approach from the United States, uh, would would cease its 40-year-long proxy war and and end its its uh, its permanent hostility to the United States, Israel. Uh, And the Arab states. That's not going to happen, I believe. I believe that the revolutionaries won uh, in in Iran, uh, and we need to craft a policy that acknowledges both the ideology of the revolution um, and and the determination uh, of those in charge. This is the supreme leader, the RGC, uh, and the Guardian Council of of continuing uh, this this hostility against us. And I think we have to be open to the possibility that Kim Jong Un wants to keep his nuclear weapons for the purposes of what the Kim family regime, the only Hereditary communist dictatorship in the world has said it before, which is to unify the peninsula under the red banner. Of course, a grave danger uh, to all of us, uh, not just because of the direct threat, but also because of the effect on the non-proliferation regime Um, and and the the fact that North Korea has never met a weapon it didn't try to sell to somebody else. Uh, In in the book, I make recommendations for uh, for our foreign policy and especially cooperative efforts with like-minded partners across the free world. Uh, to to advance and, and protect our interests and build a better future for generations to come in the final chapter i i i uh, examined the interconnected problems of of energy and, and climate and environment and food security and water security and health security and and advocate for us to, to pursue uh real solutions uh, that actually are readily available i think for these for these international uh challenges um and and, and to stop pursuing either non-solutions or, or denying that these are problems that have grave implications uh, for, for Americans and, and for all humanity. So I, you know, Ron, I could go on. <laughs> oh, I, great. Opportunity, as you can tell, to talk about about the book. You know, you want to, you work on it for a period of time and you want to get it out. It's a bit cathartic, you know, to, to be able to discuss it. And I look forward to where you would like to take the discussion.
1: Great, well, first, let me just make a comment. I want to thank you. I, I bought your book about three weeks ago. I have it on the bedstand. I, I don't know whether your introduction has satiated my need to read it because it was such a good summary, or I feel like there's so much more there. I'm going to find out. I got to get into the book. With that, let's open up the questions, and we'll we'll figure that question out as we go. Our first uh, question comes from Richard Davis. Richard, you out there?
0: Y- yes. In terms of uh, one of the things that you didn't discuss explicitly was NATO. And given the, the panoply of issues and problems that you raised, given how NATO began, what role do you see NATO having, and do you what, what do you see as the state of that alliance, and what should we be doing, if we should be doing, to strengthen it?
2: Thanks, Richard. I, I think NATO is more important than ever, not only in, in connection with the traditional mission of deterring a, another great power conflict, something that we have I think successfully prevented for the last 75 years to convince Russia in particular that it can't accomplish objectives in Europe through through the use of force, uh, but 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 also to deal with the, the this more pernicious threat of Russia's campaign of disruption, disinformation, uh, and denial. And I think what NATO has to do is is think hard about how it can develop the political authorities across uh, across the alliance to be more agile, to be more agi- agile, agile, countering in particular, Russia's sustained campaign of of really cyber-enabled information warfare against us, and to bring to bear a range of capabilities, not just military capabilities uh, that, that that give us a differential advantage over you know over a hostile force uh, if they were had the desire to to try to accomplish military objectives by the use of force, uh, but also uh, but but also uh, diplomatic efforts, law enforcement efforts economic efforts in in the forms of sanctions and financial actions. And I think that the alliance just has to become more agile at that. This, this of course, bridges over to our cooperation with the European Union and European Union countries in in the context of our bilateral relationships. But I think NATO has to get better at defeating, uh, really, and and constraining, at least, uh, organizations uh, that operate below the threshold of what might elicit a military response you see russia uh operating below that threshold quite successfully uh, by the use of these these cutouts like the internet research agency uh use of mercenary organizations like mr prigozhin's forces which are are active uh uh you know obviously in, in in the annexation of crimea the invasion of ukraine now in belarus but also in nagorno karabakh and and in uh in libya and and in syria and so uh there, there's much more we can do in this area of mapping these networks of of identifying flows through these networks of people, money, weapons, you know, narcotics, you know, precursor chemicals, other illicit goods, um, and then constraining them, you know, through a broad range of of, of legal, law enforcement and, and financial and economic actions. So I I think NATO is more important than ever to cope with you know with these threats, as well as the threats from the South associated uh with you know the catastrophe in, in the Middle East and and this, you know, what is I think uh you know the the serial episodes of mass homicide within the Syrian civil war and the way that uh, this crisis has has destabilized not only countries in the region, but, but Europe as well. Uh, and the instability in Libya, you know, and uh, Libya as a source of refugees and as a transit point for those who are fleeing insecurity and violence in the Sahel region. So I, anyway, I think there's a lot of work for NATO to do. <laughs> it, it, it's beneficial to us because it involves, you know, sharing the burden for our common defense and uh, and I think what's needed probably more than ever is an explanation of that to the American people, so we can overcome this deep skepticism about the alliance, and uh, the sense of, of of you know us being taken advantage of, uh, and our and our European allies in particular, you know, getting the better end of the deal, and us and, and us short- shouldering an unfair share of the burden. Thank, thank, you.
1: thank you. Okay, I know we have Maxine Clark from St. Louis. Yes, Maxine.
2: Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, General McMaster. It's wonderful to meet you, even in this cyber. Uh, kind of format. My question is actually about cyber warfare. And I know that when all of my friends, including you were in military school and learning uh, the ropes of military uh, support, cyber warfare wasn't as well known. Maybe you all knew about it before we
3: did, but it worries me a lot. And I'm wondering what uh, is possible, could we ever
2: win a war that was fought in the cyberspace? And how do we contain it if, if it is in fact containable? Uh, for the all the misinformation, but also other dangers that are are possible uh, from robbing our banks and taking, you know, lots of things that could happen. That it doesn't seem we're as concerned about that as maybe we should be. Right. Well, gosh, you know this this is uh, this is an important question. Obviously, I, I think you know we can win uh, in, in cyber warfare, but we have to recognize that there there's cyber wars, multiple of them going on every day already. And 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 uh, and there are three, I think, forms of warfare. Is the way that I think about it. Uh, one form of warfare is, as, as you already alluded to, attacks on our infrastructure, attacks to degrade, you know, our ability to to live, our ability to enjoy our way of life, for our economy to function, uh, attacks that 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 uh, against infrastructure that are critical to our to our national defense in a more in a more direct way uh, as well. The second form. Of, of cyber attacks are are, are are sustained campaigns of cyber in, uh, espionage against us. Some of the most capable actors uh, in in the first part of going against infrastructure are Russia, obviously China, but Iran has already demonstrated some competencies there with previous attacks, for example, on you know on our financial infrastructure, uh, as well as attacks on the Aramco oil fields. If you recall, like a few years ago, so so uh, so we already have active threats in in all of these areas. The third area. Is is cyber enabled information warfare? This is where Russia, I think, has a competitive advantage. China's learning uh, and and becoming better at, at this as well. And uh, and I think that there are different there are different defensive mechanisms in play that we can put in place for each of these. And all of it, uh, it, it is related to a good defense. A good defense is is kind of a layered defense, right? To make sure that any of our networks, whether they're commercial or public or private or military or civilian you know, have to have layers of defenses, but these have to be active defenses. These have to be defenses that include you know, a good surveillance capability to see the incoming arrows of, of cyber attacks. And at the government level, certainly, a good offense is required for a good defense. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we were able to put in place some changes in our policies that allowed our cyber forces to be more agile and to combine, when necessary, offensive and defensive uh, means for that. We need systems that obviously degrade gracefully rather than fail catastrophically. Uh, when Russia, for example, attacked Ukraine's uh, energy sector in uh, in the midst of the attack uh, on on Ukraine, Ukraine still had not gone fully digital, right? So the so you know the the you know the the worker you know you can imagine almost like in his coveralls you know seeing the lights go out. He went into the back room and flipped the big switch, you know, and, and the lights came back on. So we have to make sure as we design uh, our infrastructure, that we design it to be resilient and to degrade uh, gracefully as well. Also very important, I think, is to recognize the the various threats, right? So, you know, for example, if you look at threats against infrastructure, maybe Russia's got the greatest capability, Iran has exercised that capability, China has some capability. Uh, If you look at, for example, um, actually, there's a fourth area, which is cybercrime. Which uh, which North Korea is actually very good at, and you know we have to be able to impose costs on 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 malicious cyber actors outside of cyberspace as well. And I think we're getting much better at this. Uh, the cyber division of the FBI has has become very effective. The cyber uh, the cyber infrastructure security organization, an intergovernmental organization run uh, primarily out of, out of Homeland Security, has done a great job, I think, of securing our election infrastructure. Uh, as well as identifying other threats to transportation and financial infrastructure and, and acting on them, we're getting better. But you know the the advantage right now is still with the offense here because our surface area, right, the area we have to protect is so big. And and what's important, I think, as a, as a metaphor is recognize that we have to like shoot down the arrows that come at us across the, at the surface area, but we also sometimes have to we have to get at the archer, right? And we have to get at the archer maybe through offensive cyber, but also you know through sanctions and financial actions and and of course, if it meets the threshold of a physical war, uh, maybe the use of military force. Uh, if the if the threat to us is so significant that, that Americans are are harmed, you know, by by the cyber attacks. So, yeah, a great question. I, I feel I feel good about the direction we're headed, you know. But there's there's an immense amount of work to to be done.
1: Great, thank you very much. All right, let's go to our own Bill Galston at the Brookings
4: Institute. Bill, oh, he's got great questions for our guests. General McMaster, uh, in the course of your introductory remarks, you used a phrase that I wrote down. You referred to what you called the need for cooperative endeavors among like-minded partners, which I think is both resonant and true. For most of the period after the Second World War, we have found like-minded partners mostly among the world's democracies. And among the world's democracies, we have found most of those partners in Europe. And that brings me to my my question. There was an important and disturbing article in today's New York Times about the breakdown of confidence uh, within Europe uh, on the reliability of American leadership. Uh, And Europeans referred to the polarization that exists in the United States and the sense that the swing of policy from one administration to the next might be much greater, the amplitude of variation might be much greater uh, than they'd been accustomed to for most of the post war period. So here's my question to you Can we regain our position of global leadership? And can we regain our capacity to conduct cooperative endeavors among like minded partners unless we rebuild a domestic political concept? Uh, Consensus about the purposes of American power uh, and the modalities through which that power ought to be deployed.
2: Well, it's it's a tall order if you, if you don't, if you don't have a degree of common understanding of the challenges we face and then how we can work together as Americans and with like-minded partners to overcome those challenges and, and to take advantage of opportunities. I do write extensively throughout the book and then in the conclusion about how the inconsistency in our foreign policy and the tendency in recent years for incoming administrations to define their foreign policy mainly as in opposition to that of the previous administration, and how this whipsawing back and forth does create a sense of doubt among among partners, and I think a sense of of opportunity uh, among our enemies and adversaries. Uh, There are many examples of this that are relevant to Europe, but also other parts of the world as well, in which countries hedge, they hedge against what they think will be a radical shift in our policy or U.S disengagement from a particular problem set. So you're, you're right this is a big element of, of uh, you know of doubt I think among Europeans. Europeans of course have their own problems <laughs> they have they have problems that predate Donald Trump in terms of their own degree of of confidence right strategic their own strategic confidence. they are beset in large measure by you know by a higher degree of, of euroskepticism, uh, the rise of 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 uh doubts about about the european experiment and 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 more jealous guard, uh, guarding of of national sovereignty you know uh, and seeing brussels as a threat, the rise of nativist parties uh in in, the, in a way that is polarizing uh, communities within, within europe uh and creating tensions you know between east and and west and 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 uh, north and south you know within the european union. but we i think we ought to be a source for helping the europeans, Get through all this as, as we we help us uh, sustain confidence in the transatlantic relationship. I think there's been a tendency to see Europe more as a competitor right than, than as an ally and whereas uh, arguments for burden sharing and so forth are completely appropriate, I think we are at a time at a time in, in, in our history um, where we we have to come together as, as free and open societies uh, as free market economic systems uh, and as democracies because we are, I think, in the midst of a competition between between us and and authoritarian and closed systems. I think we have an opportunity in this connection. I think China has helped us, in connection with this opportunity uh, by uh, by the way it it, it, it mishandled COVID-19, the way it added uh, insult to injury with this wolf warrior diplomacy, largely aimed at at Europe in a way that's backfired, I think, against the Chinese Communist Party. And, And it has been, I think, a bit of a crystallizing moment in connection with the various threats. I mean, I think Navalny's poisoning might be another, you know, an, another moment that that uh, can, can, uh, can can help highlight the, the importance uh, of us staying together in the community of democratic uh, and free nations. So, I'm optimistic about it. Actually, uh, I, I agree. It is a, it is a fraught, uh, difficult problem. Uh, and period. Now, uh, but we but we do have opportunities. I think on the horizon. Thank you.
1: Oh, great. This is so, so very thought-provoking. Um, let's go to Stamen Ogilvy. And before we do just a commercial, if you have a question, please use the chat and send us your name and we'll organize them and, and manage to get us through them. Stamen?
3: Yeah, thank you, Ron. And thank you, General, for uh, a, a quick uh, survey of the risks in the world and uh, a notice of the naivete with which we have responded to them.
1: There's too many risks, Stamen. This is making...
3: There are plenty of them. Uh, So I have two questions. One is uh, budgetary and one is uh, uh, energy related. I'll start with the latter. You mentioned uh, the importance of energy independence. Uh, We seem to have a large fraction of our public right now who is, uh, which is not particularly concerned about energy independence in a rush to get away from fossil fuels that would be a forfeiture of our energy independence were we to do that. And it also is the basis on which the military runs. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about that. And then simply from a budgetary standpoint, uh, we have uh, worked hard at whittling down the fraction of the GDP which the United States spends on the military. Uh, As you thought about all these risks and all these needs, uh, and the coming of the space force and so forth. What percentage ought we be accustomed to spending of GDP on defense?
2: Well, th- thanks for that. Uh, thanks for those questions on on energy and uh, independence, energy policy. So I think it's important to point out to to those that uh, all of us who ought to be uh, we all ought to be concerned about global warming and climate change is that the, the greatest reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in, in recent history since the Industrial Revolution was due to a completely unanticipated development called fracking. And then the, avail- the availability of cheap natural gas, which incentivized us, uh, provided the economic incentive to transition from coal uh, to natural gas. And I think what, what is needed now more than ever is, as I mentioned, real solutions, no more non-solutions non solutions are is that's the green new deal is a non solution right? and 100% renewables uh you know, germany's declaration that that's what it wanted to do that's kind of that's a non solution as well as, as we're we're seeing now with you know with Nord Stream 2 and then germany because of of getting rid of nuclear uh now is in a situation where it's given russia a course of power over its economy right uh, so so energy has big security implications a, a, as well i think there are a range of technologies that allow us to that could allow us to solve this problem and do it in a way that is consistent with the economic incentives, uh, free market incentives that make these solutions attractive within developing economies. That's the most important part of this, I think, is is that we cannot develop solutions only for developed economies because you know carbon particles don't respect countries' borders, right? And and it's China that's the, that's building 70 coal-fired plants a year, 70 a year. Uh, that is creating the carbon particles that are hovering over Los Angeles today, right? So, so we have to we have to recognize that that uh, that natural gas is a bridge is a bridge uh, and, and to displace coal uh, and and cleaner natural gas like the like what we produce and U.S. exports of LNG I think are a big part of this uh, solution, uh, but then next generation nuclear as well, especially these modular uh, nuclear technologies. Uh, where you know where where the you know the the uh, you know the the half life of the of waste is only about 500 years. You know they can use actually nuclear waste to fuel these plants. Uh, these plants actually uh, help solve problems associated with with underdeveloped infrastructure because they're more local and they can produce energy in areas that that lack kind of a comprehensive, uh, broader like national level uh, infrastructure. Uh, and then, of course, renewables are becoming much cheaper and, and more much more efficient. Although they're they're not as reliable in terms of how long uh, you know, they I mean they're uh, operating under all conditions. Uh, battery storage density another big technological uh, opportunity here. So, and then you have some kind of longer range ones, you know, which is uh, you know space based solar power, for example, but which has promise as well. But I think we have to pursue a range of solutions, but do it in, in a way that, that is, is economically viable. I think the the country that we should we should prioritize is India. You know, India has these interconnected problems of food and water security, uh, and energy, and, and environment and climate. And a small problem in India is a big problem for the world just because of the scale of the country. And it's in all of our interests to, to work together with India, India's leadership uh, to solve these problems and maybe set an embarrassing example for uh, China. You know, Xi Jinping gets all this credit for what he says, right? You know, like he said, "Hey, we're going to be carbon." Neutral by 2060. Okay, but he's still building—you know—70 coal-fired plants a a year, doing doing so not only his own country but in Africa and elsewhere. Right? I mean, they just completed uh, the the largest carbon emitter carbon emitter uh, in Kenya, right next to a UNESCO World Heritage (laughs) (laughs) Heritage site. Right. So, so you have to look at really what they're actually doing, and uh, and I think this is an area tremendous opportunity. This is a win-win, I think, for for America in terms of exports. I'm talking in connection with LNG in, in particular. And I should disclose the fact that I just you know, started working with a, a company called Sempra Energy That that is uh, the CEO is my West Point classmate. And and uh, I'm advising them on geopolitical dynamics affecting LNG export. But I'm, I'm a true believer in it. You know, I think it's good for the environment. It's good for the world. It's good for the U.S. And it's, it's also good for uh, for other countries who want to reduce uh, the coercive power of Russia. This is in particular, I think, Poland uh, that, that is anxious to. For example, to build facilities to import US LNG, Croatia, uh, which is also developing facilities uh, for that purpose, Japan, uh, who once it got rid of nuclear uh, after the tsunami uh, and, and the Fukushima disaster, you know, is really in a tough spot, right? And and is and is in a position where they really don't have much option but to rely more on coal unless we get uh, LNG routinely exported there as well. So I could go on about that, but thanks for the question. It's an area that I've thought about for some time and. And think is a, a tremendous opportunity. There
3: was that other little piece about percentage of GDP that defense should oh yeah.
2: I think it's I think it's about four percent, right? And and uh and and there is a bow wave of deferred modernization to take care of in defense. Uh our adversaries, uh as we've been fighting wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, have looked at our competitive advantages and developed countermeasures, counter space, offensive cyber, electronic warfare long-range missile capabilities tiered and layered air defense uh cheap uh but but effective uh unmanned aerial systems and undersea systems and so we have to we have to respond to that we have to maintain our differential advantage um and if you look at discretionary spending of course that's not the problem uh with you know with the the deficit um and the growth of, of our debt uh we have to really do one of two things we have to either take on non-discretionary spending uh, which is obviously all compounded right by the COVID-19 pro, uh, you know, uh, relief effort, which was necessary, but indebted us further, or we have to generate more revenue, right? More revenue by certainly we want to grow the economy. Uh, but, but I think there, there's going to, Congress is going to have to come up with a way uh, to address the debt or else our federal budget will be consumed just by service on the debt, especially if, if interest rates increase. Any, any washed up general should say about economics? Thanks very much, because, uh, you know, it's dangerous for me to, to wander too far into, into a field uh, that's not my area of expertise, but thank you. We appreciate your perspectives. Tim, Tim Sloan, you're up.
3: Thanks, Ron. Uh, General McMaster, thank you for your uh, service to the country and, and your leadership. Very much appreciated, and I appreciate your uh, comments. I wonder if you could circle back and, uh, and comment in a little bit more detail about the next steps that you
2: would take or advise that we should take in terms of, of dealing with North Korea. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right. So, so uh, you know, North Korea, as, as I mentioned, is, is a danger to the world because of the breakdown in the nonproliferation regime, the fact that, you know, this regime having the most dangerous weapons on earth is likely to transfer those as it was in the process of transferring uh, a nuclear program to, uh, to Syria until the Israeli Defense Force bombed that facility in 2007. So I think uh, I think what we have to do is stick with this, this uh, approach of maximum pressure, and at least Tim test the thesis that Kim Jong Un can be convinced that he's less safe with the weapons than he is without them. And I think this is what, what this is going to take is a concerted effort uh, to to double down on enforcement of of, of really unprecedented UN Security Council um, sanctions, approved sanctions on the North Korean regime. This has to do with you know the slave labor, so-called guest workers uh, that, that generate revenue for the regime. It's really going after their their cyber uh, criminal activities that is a big revenue generator for them. It is it is getting China to try uh, to, to get trying to get China to, to convince China to do more. That's problematic for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but maybe uh, one way to convince China is, is secondary sanctions on Chinese entities, including financial institutions, uh, if they're enabling the bypass of, of sanctions. I think under uh, article 2 authority uh the president could uh order uh interdiction of ship to ship ships engaged in ship to ship transfer and smuggling uh to into into uh North Korea and that would be a way to increase uh pressure as well as i think demonstrating our ability uh to respond militarily to a North Korean provocation. I think one of the aspects of the problem we have to consider is hey the next time you know a a uh, tell you know rolls out uh, of a mountain with a missile on it, how do we know it's just a test? How do we know it's not really a nuclear strike against Japan or South Korea or maybe even Guam? So I think we you know we may come to a point at which we have to tell North Korea we will uh, we will regard any detection uh, of, uh, of of uh, an erector launcher moving uh, you know out of a clandestine facility uh, as, um, as as cause for a preemptive strike. You know, and, and of course, if we do that, um, that could unleash escalation that could lead to a destructive war, and we'd have to be prepared for that. But you know, this is all has to do with really how our leaders are going to be able to calculate risk in the future. I think all this though, could be combined with, again, convincing the regime that they're safer without them. I think it is important to try to paint a future for North Korea that would, in, at least in their mind, in Kim Jong-un's mind, keep that regime in power uh, and allow him to alleviate the you know the suffering of the north korean people he, does, he has of course continued to prioritize the missile and nuclear program over the welfare of his people uh and doubled down on this kind of juche ideology in which they equate deprivation to the virtue, virtue of of their superior race right and and uh he's continued to build palaces and erect monuments while his his people remain destitute so i i think you know, I, I think that, uh, that we should not underestimate the danger from this regime. We have to be ready, though. If there is a collapse, I mean, the crying during the speech recently, you know, the fact that he did disappear for long periods of time this year, uh, the fact that there is kind of a new middle class, you know, within Pyongyang that has more to lose than, than maybe in, in the past, uh, and, and the fact that COVID may have hit them pretty hard, uh, despite the claim that there's not even one case in, in the country. Uh, and and the floods that the country's experienced, so it's a really touchy time. I think what we shouldn't do is go back to the failed pattern of previous efforts. And and uh, you know the the, ty- the one of the chapter titles in the book is called "The Definition of Insanity," describing uh, how we we oftentimes let uh, the Kim family regime get away with this cycle of you know of provocation, extortion of payoffs up front, and relie- alleviation of sanctions engaging in long, frustrating negotiations that ended a weak agreement that locks in the status quo as a new normal, and then they immediately violate it and, and repeat the cycle. So that's what we shouldn't do, I think, Tim.
1: All right. We've got uh, 15 minutes left and and at least seven requests on my list for questions. So we're going to enter the lightning round. Two minutes per question, right? Let's. All right. Uh, All right. Let's head out to uh,
4: Doug Scribner Doug, are you still up? Thank you, Ron, in general. As a overseer at the Hoover Institution, we're delighted to have you back home. You talked about strategic competence and strategic empathy. I think foundational to both of those, at least in part, is intelligence. I wonder if you could give us your assessment of our current capabilities, human and technologically based, mm-hmm. um, and sort of leadership questions. For two administrations, we've had allegations flying in all directions about politicization and the like. So how, yeah. where are we? Where do we need to go?
2: Right. Okay, Doug. Hey, the the last three chapter, last three paragraphs of the uh, of the book, uh, I write about the Hoover Institution and how really I could not have written this book anywhere else but at but at Hoover and at Stanford. And I'm just so grateful for the institution, my colleagues here, and the amazing students that I work with. My research assistants who are just, I mean, just immensely talented. I I think of David Brooks is saying when he said that he's decided to teach only at schools he that he could not have gotten into. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm loving it here with these really extraordinarily talented and and, uh, and, and, and dedicated young, young people. So, uh, I, you know, I, I think that, that our intelligence community is in, is in good shape. You know, I, I think Gina Haspel at CIA is, is just a wonderful leader. She's tremendous. Uh, and, and we are developing new capabilities that are important to compete more effectively in space and cyberspace, and probably can just leave it at that, um, and are constantly developing new tools and, and capabilities for technical intelligence collection. I think the area that we're most behind is in the area of open source intelligence. In fact, I think now maybe it's like 90% of what we want to know is now commonly available uh, from, from now commercial satellites. I mean, look what Planet Labs has done, for example. Look at the overall commercialization of space. Look at how, uh, how uh, social media has changed communications dynamics and how the skimming of social media gives you insights uh, into conflicts that, that are otherwise quite opaque, such as the Syrian Civil War. Um, so I think that when we look at more low-Earth orbit, orbit satellites, like uh, like uh, what Elon Musk is working on with Skylink and so forth, I think our intelligence community has to get better at, at, uh, at collecting and synthesizing data from open sources and then applying artificial intelligence tools to, 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 to provide early warning uh, and, and then also to, to provide uh, information and intelligence that's relevant to policymaking, decision-making, military operations and so forth. So open source I'd put top top of the list and then uh and then in terms of of what in, in a 1960s essay uh the author entitled uh, the the fate of facts in the lives of men you know and, and remember this was the 60s should, should have said men and women obviously but 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 uh but what 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 uh, that essay and that speech was was about uh was about the influence of policy on intelligence and the tendency, the human t- tendency to, well, let's give the policymaker maybe what they want to hear, you know? And and I think we've seen that become more explicit, drawn out into the open, I think, uh, during the Trump years here, and we have to just jealously guard against it. Um, and I think the way to do that is is through the professionalism of our intelligence officers, for sure, and then also educating policymakers to let them know, hey, you may get the answer you want, but what that's going to do is is mask long-term costs and consequences that are ultimately going to work out to your disbenefit. So thanks for those questions.
1: That was great. Uh, let's go to Arnold Lipsky. I think he has one relative to PSC, our Problem Solvers Coalition. Arnold, are you out there? Yeah, uh, you know, quick question. I'm here because I had some connections with the, the no labels. And the, what about the effect of the, the value of no labels or the uh, or its sister organization where they are uh, problem solvers? Does it work? Is it working? Can you see it work?
2: Well, I know, I'll tell you, well, there's, I mean, uh, the good news is job security, right? I, mean, I think, you know, I think that there's a lot of work to do. Uh, you know, I, I, I believe it is a noble endeavor. I don't think we're, we're, I don't know if we're winning yet, you know, in terms of polarization uh, along partisan lines uh, and, and emphasizing the need for us to work together in a bipartisan, nonpartisan manner, but that has to be the theme. We have to prevail in this. Uh, I believe that our adversaries are taking full advantage of divisions in our society along issues of race and and other polarizing issues, uh, you know, frustrations over inequality of opportunity. But I think, especially in the area of foreign policy and 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 trying to build a better future for generations to come we should be able to come together on these issues i tried as national security advisor to build generate and generate bipartisan support uh for trump administration foreign policies uh many of those policies were walked back after i left but but you know i think we were generally successful uh during that period in gain, in garnering uh, bipartisan support you know i just think it's immensely it's immensely important it's important also to sustaining a consistent approach to foreign policy and 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 stopping this vacillation uh, back back and forth. I don't think we're winning yet, but when I look at especially you know some of the younger members of, of Congress, I'm pretty heartened by uh, the way that they are working working together. And and, and I, I think that we our voices can, can should be louder, right? I think that those of us who want to come together as Americans can drown out the, the both extremes uh, if we are vocal if we work together, and if we reach out, you know, to, to convene uh, groups of like-minded people and, and work together on our biggest problems. So I, I applaud you for what you're doing. Uh, I think it's immensely important. Uh, it's not clear to me that we're winning. <laughs> I think that uh, we may not have yet hit bottom in terms of our political polarization.
1: Let's hope we do, because well, <laughs> we've, we've gotten to a very tough place. All right, another sort of domestic question john evangelicos john you out there yes hi i um thank you general thank you for your service the current political environment i'd, I'd say seems to me um introspective americans really want to focus at home uh, many americans think uh, we don't need the distractions overseas and even when there are things we need to do overseas
0: that there are many allies who aren't pulling their weight uh, i i guess the question for you is to what extent do you agree with that assessment? And if you do, what is the scope for U.S. foreign policy in light yeah. of
2: that? So, well, John, I do agree with that assessment. And I think what, what our leaders have not done effectively uh, for, for many years now is explain to Americans what they deserve to, to hear. Uh, first of all, what is at stake? What is at stake in these competitions overseas? You know, how is it going to affect uh, the, their security, their prosperity, uh, our, our influence in, in the world? And and the prospects for future generations And then of course you know what is a strategy right what's a strategy that will deliver a favorable outcome and, and importantly at a cost acceptable to the American people And so I believe that this has everything to do with our strategic competence and that lack of competence affects our confidence in our ability to implement a sustained reasonable sustainable uh, for, foreign policy. Uh, I write about this extensively you know in, in the book and in, a, in an essay uh, in foreign affairs a couple issues ago, called rebutting retrenchment. And and in it, you know, I make the argument that it is clearly in our interest to remain engaged. And I I use COVID-19 as a bit of metaphor just to point out the fact that 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 problems that develop overseas, if they're not dealt with early uh, and dealt with abroad, uh, can only be can only be coped with at an exorbitant price once they reach our shores. I think that you can say that about the mass murder attacks of 9-11. And you can certainly say that about our experience with COVID-19 as well.
1: Got it. That that was great. Um, Okay, Uh, let's let's go back international. John Martin, I think you have a question.
2: I
3: do, thanks, Ron. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. And and General, thank you for your service and thanks for spending time with us today. I'd I'd like to go back to uh, China for a moment. Um, For years, China seemed to operate under a, a global... Glow, if you will, of future possibilities for partnership. Yet now we've seen an administration that has pushed back pretty meaningfully on their course of action. We've seen them exposed for their blatant human rights abuses and and uh, the transmission of the COVID vi- virus and and their handling of that. So, what do you see as the way forward for our relationship with China?
2: Well, I, I think I think the administration is actually implementing a. a, 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 a strategy for china i know i know they are cuz we developed it when i was there and and i think the criticism is you know that hey well they, the British administration really doesn't have a strategy and look at what they're doing they're employing trade enforcement mechanisms they're indicting uh chinese entities that are engaged in industrial espionage and they're doing that with allies and partners they're taking up actions with the you know the, the world trade organization they're establishing international standards for you know, for, uh, for infrastructure investment to, to counter one belt, one road. Uh, they're exposing uh, Chinese uh, predatory economic practices, demanding equal access to the market, constraining uh, you know ch- uh, uh, Chinese investment in the United States and foil, trying to foil their efforts at, at, uh, at stealing intellectual property, uh, exposing Chinese agents uh, of the People's Liberation Army scientists that have penetrated academia and our research facilities. Conducting joint naval exercises continuously through the South China Sea and and in support of uh, of Taiwan and the threats against Taiwan, there's no strategy. No, but, well, well, yeah, that that's the strategy right? and banning Walray and all these other actions. Now, it's not perfectly implemented, believe me. I mean, you know, I, I don't think steel and aluminum tariffs on our allies is a good way to get to China, right? And and one of the lines I would often use uh, to the the tariff uh, enthusiasts is that hey. You know, if we shoot all of our allies to get to China, you know, China wins, right? And so I uh, I think there, there is a high degree of international cooperation, but we need an opportunity. We need to we need to redouble uh international cooperation on key issues, data standards for the emerging data economy, all sorts of contested spaces that China is trying to move into. China's subversion of international organizations. The World Health Organization is just one example, right? How about the Human Rights Council? It's a joke, right? They're on the Human Rights Council or or, or uh UNESCO or the uh, the International Civil Aviation Organization, or I mean, you name it, right? They they infiltrate these, <laughs> try to get into these organizations so they can turn them against their purpose, right? And so, so there there are a lot of opportunities to to compete. I would say that what we should do in the in the short term, and what I hope whoever gets sworn in on January twentieth will do, will take on three misunderstandings about our China policy. One, hey, this is a U.S. China problem. Well, how's that possible, right? I mean, if you're bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death in the Himalayan frontier. If you're conducting cultural genocide against Uyghurs, th- did the U.S. make China do that? I, I don't. I don't think so. Right. The second myth is that there hasn't been international co- cooperation. There has been, and it's growing, and we need to expand it. And the third myth is that we face this false dilemma of either accommodating the party uh, or a destructive war, you know, between the so-called status quo power and rising power. Hey, I think there's a lot of middle ground there, right? And then, and it actually co- uh, uh, competing with China, actually reduces, I think, the the chances of confrontation. I think the path that we're on of cooperation and engagement uh, was actually leading to confrontation because the party was emboldened and we had not imposed costs on the party for even their most egregious acts, such as what would be the largest land grab uh, in history in the South China Sea. So uh, thanks. This is the competition for the, you know, the the rest of the century.
1: All right. So let's go for one more. Bill Galston usually has the last uh... Word the last question, um, Bill? Would you like to take it? You got one more. I do, if we have time,
4: Ron. But yeah, the, general no, no. Has a, the general has a hard stop at four yeah, okay, uh, fifty-five, so I think.
3: Let's, I, let's I, see I, think what I get your question out.
4: I think what I no, I actually think what I ought to do is just is is just close us out, uh, unless okay. uh, because I don't want to make him late for his next appointment. So you know the the question that I would have asked and I hope we can revisit this when you accept our invitation for return engagement, which believe me, will be forthcoming. Uh, You've left us wanting more in this conversation, was whether we have the capacity to counter a Chinese military attack against Taiwan, which appears to be increasingly in the often. But for now, let me just underscore the message that you've delivered which is really resonant with the purposes of no labels. You've underscored the need for cooperation abroad. Uh, We have some now, but as you pointed out repeatedly, we need more. And you've made it clear that cooperation abroad depends on a broader and deeper consensus here at home about the purposes of American power in the most effective way of deploying it no labels exists for exactly that person for that purpose to take the islands of agreement that now exist and broaden them into a much larger continent of agreement across party lines so that people around the world will not fear that what one administration does the next will undo we were strong abroad for decades because people around the world had confidence that the fundamental direction of our policy would be sustained even if administrations and party control changed. So we will, you know, we will be trying to do that, I'd say even more in the area of foreign policy uh, in the next four years than we have in the previous four years. We need the best advice we can get Uh, And I think on the basis of today's presentation, we know where we can go to find it. And so this is both a threat and an opportunity uh, to come back and talk to us again, perhaps after January, uh, when at least the leadership of the United States for the next four years will have been clarified by the American people. So again, thank you so much. Uh, Thank
2: you. uh, We have learned
4: a great deal. And let me me
1: just add to all of you. Thank you, General. Just to get you out of here, one second, I just want to thank you personally. I've learned more in this last hour than you can imagine. I'm going to read the book
0: tonight. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Bill. Thanks to all of you. And thanks for the great work that No Labels does. Take care, everybody.
0: General McMaster explains that he wrote Battlegrounds in an attempt to bring Americans together in a time of increasing divisiveness that he thinks weakens our country. In the post-Cold War era, he claims we have lost our strategic confidence, Americans falsely believed we could indefinitely maintain an era of military dominance, and over the last 30 years, we have transitioned to a pessimistic view of our position in the world. He says going forward, our leaders at every level will need a greater emphasis on understanding history and moving forward politically and militarily. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.